1: the downward sloping demand curve is the most basic law of economics, isn't it? Nobody could argue that an increase in price is not going to result in a fall in demand. Well, maybe that works at the individual level, but at the aggregate level, at the level at which, you know, you can actually apply to an economic model, well, then you are in trouble. Because as Steve Keen explains today, that law really doesn't exist. It hasn't been proven. It has been disproven. And it is not a sound foundation for understanding how the economy works, because it is much more complicated than those first-year textbooks will let on. That is today on the Debunking Economics podcast with Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. Welcome along. Now, when you get down to the root of it, neoclassic economies uh, are wrong from the ground up. I'm sure that's what Steve Keen would say, having spent most of his life trying to argue that point. So let's get right down to the ground level. Uh, this week, Steve, let's look at how firms work and let's ignore the the, the macro picture for right now. Let's get down to the nitty gritty of the microeconomic mm-hmm. level. Uh, and I, I think a lot of us can relate to how firms work because we've worked for them ourselves uh, or even run them mm-hmm. ourselves. Uh, mm. So let's start with uh, the demand curve. You know, that graph that shows the relationship between the price of a good and the demand for it. Uh, economists even call this a law. Which means we can't dispute it, presumably, otherwise we'll go to prison. Uh, but this law says when prices... <laughs> Even worse, you
0: could be put in the first year economics textbook. <laughs> exactly. E- ex- economics class, that'd, that'd be, for or, me, that'd be
1: worse than prison. Or, or put in the textbook. Yeah, that reminded me of... The, that was a Woody Allen book, wasn't it? The, this short story about uh, this character who, uh, he, who uh, finds himself in a book... And they get trapped there forever. Imagine that being. No, that I one. haven't seen that one. Uh, it's uh, it was some of his early writings. Anyway, we're, we're digressing even from the beginning. But look, this law says when prices fall, demand goes up. Uh, any problem with that?
0: Well, I mean, the idea is that your you, you buyers want to buy less if so the price goes up. They want to buy more if the price goes down. And like, there's, there's a certain real world logic to that. I mean, you know, we, we're all looking for specials and you go and buy a special when a special happens. And if something gets to be cheaper, then you can afford more of it in your budget so you're more, you're more likely to buy more of it. Um, but the, the funny thing is this demand curve, which is such an essential part of mainstream economic theory, can't be derived from mainstream economic theory. And this, to me, is the biggest logical hole in in the conventional economic thinking because they spend all their time talking, as you said, about the law of demand Um and and show and prove and proving that for an individual uh, the if you try to relate the amount that they'll pay to the amount that they buy, then you find a negative relationship if the price goes up the amount of individual demands goes down, and vice versa. But when they try to derive that at the level of a market, and, of course, to derive a market demand curve, you've got to consider not just an isolated consumer, but every consumer in the country, mm. uh, that's your market. Uh, when you do it that way, and they try to show uh, that a decreasing price will increase demand, the theory fails. E- even
1: at the individual level though you'd you you'd be thinking well it's not going to work. I mean if the if the price of pizza falls I'm, I'm I, I, I might eat a bit more pizza but I'm, I'm, there's going to be a, a ceiling on that irrespective of the price isn't it? You know and then you've Well you've,
0: they do talk about the theory just or the elasticity of demand. So they'll say there are some things where the demand is quite price and elastic. For example, I imagine Texans are realizing electricity demand is fairly price inelastic. Yeah, well, they, right they
1: would now. have done wouldn't they a few weeks ago okay. when they were having those big storms. Absolutely.
0: Yeah, $10,000 a kilowatt. Um, so yeah, the uh, you, there are some things you simply can't do without for any sustained period, and you'll pay anything to get your hands on it. Uh, you won't you won't do that uh, in normal times, but if there's a shortage, then bang, you've got to have it or you die. Um, uh, but other stuff, which uh, is is so uh, so little interest to you in the market that an increase in price uh, will mean a drastic fall in your demand for it. So you have some things that were very elastic, very others inelastic, and that's you know, that's you know a certain amount of realism and, and real worldism to the, to the concept of, of market demand and, and price sensitivity and so on. But the funny, the thing which I find quite hilarious, because it just undermines the whole way of thinking, is that when theoreticians try to prove that the demand curve is, slopes down in, in price, so a, a higher price means a lower quantity, so the slope of the curve you draw is a negative slope, when they try to prove it, they can't. They get any slope at all. Right. Any slope at all. They, they, they say they can't well, it's, prove. In a, well, they,
1: they don't know what it is, or they're saying it's flat, or they're saying it's going the other way. What, what are they saying?
0: Well, the actual answer is if you want to see some polysyllabic words, look at, look at the way economists try to uh, to um, explain this particular finding. It's in even, even the names of the people who found it as polysyllabic. So there's uh, it's called the Sonnenschein-Mantel-Gebrau theorem. Right. How's that for a mouthful? Yeah, that's good. Otherwise, yeah, I feel okay. I feel so, I feel sorry for
1: Andrew Cox who, who, who transcribes these podcasts when he come out with stuff like that.
0: Oh but- dear, sun and <laughs> oh, well, <I'll> spell it. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. Uh, but the sun and shine birth theorem was actually first discovered by a guy called Gorman. And I think Gorman's a bit easier to pronounce. Mm. Um, and and that was that they have a theory of how individuals uh, decide how much to consume, which takes their income as given, at the price of all other commodities as fixed as well, and then they vary the price of one good, and they say, well, what's going to happen if this good gets cheaper or more expensive to your total demand? Yeah. And as part of that, they say, well, it's quite possible what you're buying. Let's say, for example, what you're we're looking at is the price of potatoes. And if you're particularly poor, let's say you're an Irish person in the early 1800s, um, then if potatoes get even more expensive... Uh, that that means you can't afford the other stuff. I mean, demand for potatoes actually goes up. This is what they call a Giffen good. Yeah. Um, but in general, they say, well, uh, there are some goods where if the price falls, you get you get two benefits out of a falling price. One is that uh, the relative price is cheaper, so you're more likely to buy more of that good. But the other one is because the price of something you're paying for out of your income has fallen, you've now got a bit of extra e- effective income you could spend on other goods as well. So there's what they call the substitution effect and the, and the income effect. Yeah. And the substitution effect necessarily is negative, but the income effect can be positive. So uh, they go through quite a bit of rigmarole to finally get to what they call, and this is another, sorry, Andrew, um, Hicksian compensated demand curves. And this was John Hicks, uh, again, somebody who's been, both famous and infamous in economics, uh, said that, well, what we can do is, uh, we're trying to see how much a person is going to buy given the relative prices. And we want to focus on the relative prices alone. So we need to get rid of the income effect that can happen from prices getting cheaper. Yeah. So his mechanism was they had used, you know, I won't, I won't, I won't try to talk this stuff through. It's much more stuff to look at in a, a diagram, but they have this idea of showing combinations of, of different sorts of goods that give you exactly the same overall satisfaction. And they call that an indifference curve. And what Hicks said is, well, if you just work out the slope of the indifference curve, um, that is necessarily negative. This is just the substitution effect. The cheaper something gets, the more of it you can buy. And with the substitution effect alone, you necessarily will buy more of the price falls. Uh, so that's what they do at the individual level, but then which is nonsense, um, of course. We'll come back to it, but anyway. yeah, Well, yeah, we'll come back to that. A whole lot of stuff is nonsense about their theories, uh, but this particular bit is 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 a is a, a fitting uh, piece of nonsense. Because, to come because back that, to well, let's do
1: quickly. Begin, the reason I think it's nonsense is so. Say so you've got pizza and uh, and Chinese food, then hmm. uh, if the price of pizza falls, then relatively speaking, the price of uh, of the Chinese food is increased. And mm. so the so that by that logic, then I'd say, well, okay, that makes the Chinese food seem more expensive. Therefore, I'm going to eat less Chinese food because pizza prices mm. have fallen. But what happens if I actually quite like Chinese food and I've got more money because I'm not spending as much on pizza?
0: Well, that's what they call the income effect, mm. and that's where they, they, there's some goods where. You know the fall in price can encourage you to spend that money elsewhere rather than spend on that particular good. But the substitution you know, argument
1: is also saying you you know you're looking at the relativity of it. So the so the the fall in the in the price of pizza has made the Chinese food seem more expensive to you, but it's not. It's the same mm. price as it was before. I don't care.
0: Yeah, the, the, but it's you know, the the economics is all about. You know, neoclassical economics is all about relative prices, so they, mm. they obsess about this one. So, but but what? What they've got in their theory is they don't talk about workers and capitalists and bankers, which you know I do mm. in my, both my language and my modeling, but they simply talk about the individual. They leave out the question of where your income comes from. And they leave it, therefore they leave out when with the very basic level of how they look at the economy, they focus upon this isolated individual, the classic Robinson Crusoe, and they leave out the class relationship. Now, a class relationship only exists if there are social classes. Now, you can only talk about workers uh, as a social class, if there's another class of non workers, we call capitalists or we call bankers. So there's a, at the core of the old classical school of economic thought, that there was a way in which the distribution of income was part of their thinking. But with the neoclassicals, they said, forget all this stuff. Doesn't matter how you make your money. We're all individuals, uh, except for me, of course. Um, I'm sorry. if that was a no, Monty Python reference. That's yes, right. Yeah, that's right. Thank you. Good. Um, just seeing if you're awake. This is neoclassical economics so you could easily fall asleep while I'm talking. <laughs> um, but the 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 idea is that they completely leave out you you have no they don't even consider your relationship with anybody else at all, let alone whether you're in a social class or not. So you're just an isolated individual. With an income source, which then again, they, the theory doesn't care. You know, when they work out the, the demand curve, they're not saying how much of this income is from profit and how much is from wages. It's just that's your income. That we take as fixed. Then we take all other prices as being fixed. We vary one price and we see what happens. And with a few shenanigans, we can derive a downward sloping individual demand curve. But then they, they, and this is where you know, I have some respect for some of these mathematical economists who've done this work, they then said, well, that works for an individual, because you have seen an in, individual in isolation, you're looking at a single commodity in isolation, mm. you're working out at those two relationships. What about driving a market demand curve? Can you just look at that individual in isolation? No. You've got to look at everybody who's effectively part of the market, and therefore you're looking at... Uh, you know the, the market for um, potatoes in Ireland. Uh, then you're looking at the entire population of England and Ireland, including those who produce potatoes. Yeah. Yep. Um, so if you then talk about changing the price of potatoes. I hate the fact that I've got a potato as an example, but it'll have to do. Um, <laughs> yeah, apologies then, for
1: apologies to the Irish okay. listening for for you being stereotyped. Uh, into and for those the, people who don't like potatoes, yeah. people, exactly. Uh, mm.
0: uh, but if you increase the price of potatoes, you make potato buyers wealthier. Mm. Okay. Now, they're part of the demand for potatoes. If it happens, you, you, you look down, mm. what, what's the alcohol you make out of potatoes? Uh, vodka, isn't vodka, it? Vodka, there you go. Well, let's just say all these Irish people happen to be great fans of vodka. So the increase in the in the, in the the price of potatoes makes them wealthier. Mm. They've got more money to spend. They buy more vodka. Um, and, and what can happen out of all that is that the income distribution effects, uh, which you cannot get rid of as you can for an individual uh, using this theory, um, that income effect can outweigh the substitution effect and the increase in price for potatoes can cause an increase in demand for potatoes. And the, w- the, way, the way that if anybody's done economic theory and they've suffered through working out indifference curves, the way that I make the, this, the point about this is they, they, to get the idea of a downward sloping demand curve, they treat the point on the vertical axis, which is where your income and all of the goods turn up, as fixed. And then they change the angle of the line you can draw from there to how, if you spent all your income buying potatoes, how many potatoes could you buy? That's the number on the x-axis. So that varies as you change the price of potato. The vertical one remains fixed. With a few shenanigans, you can guarantee you get a downward sloping demand curve for potatoes. But once you say the income is changed and affected by the change in relative prices, that fixed point on the vertical axis becomes mobile and therefore the curve, the, when you start doing all your attempts to join up and, and draw an overall market demand curve where some people's demands going up and others is going down that point can go all over the no should I swear again all the over the place and you can get any curve you can draw which can be which is a curve where uh, rather than being a downward sloping demand curve you get a curve which can be you can draw by running a finger along the page in one direction never uh, crossing back on your path and never intersecting, and that, that can be a demand curve. And it's in, in in mathematical terms, any continuous function, and that's word they use, so what's is the, a demand curve. So what's the curve. law
1: then at the end of all now, of this then? So the law
0: is... So he's going to well, say well, the, no the law, the, the law is that no, it's uh, uh, demand
1: falls as the price goes up unless it doesn't. Is so that We can say that, can't we? That would be about
0: as much as we can say. Well, no, we can say demand falls as the price goes up unless it rises. Or right. stays the same. Both of which are equally feasible at the aggregate uh, level. So what, what it mm. means is the theory is amiss. And the response to that should have been, and this is where a, a good friend of mine, Alan Kerman, um, now a good friend we we became Alan and I met in a funny way. Alan Kerman wrote a wonderful paper uh, uh, on on the economic theory, and the he the subtitle was "The Emperor Has No Clothes." Well, you might remember that's when I when I when I had the debunking economics. I subtitled it "The Naked Emperor of the Social Sciences," and uh, Alan. Uh, made the point that looking at this theory, the only way to get out of it was to work at a high level of aggregation because the whole problem is it's ignoring the distribution of income. Now, if you change relative prices, you change income distribution. If you make potatoes more expensive, you make potato producers wealthier, potato consumers in general poorer, and you really don't know which way the overall pattern is going to go. The only way to be able to get a definitive answer out of it is to include social classes in there and to say, well, you know, even in terms of like industrial structure as, as well, of course. But even they're not fixed, um, they, they're
1: going to be changed it, 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 by, the, by the model as well. As people yeah, move from one, one yeah. class to another, as they become wealthier because
0: potatoes have gone up. So, yeah, but there's not a there's not, there's less social mobility in the mm. classes than you might expect, or maybe, maybe as much as you would expect. Um, but the end result is the whole idea of trying to derive economics from the isolated individual and working up which is the foundation of neoclassical economics, fails at the very first post because if they do that, they can't even drive a market demand curve. They've got to assume, they've got to make ad hoc assumptions. And this is if you want to annoy a neoclassical, accuse them of making ad hoc assumptions. And they'll say, oh, no, we don't, we're, we're pure theorists. We go back to the foundations and drive everything from um what are the they, they've got fundamental parameters. They'll use terms like that. Uh, but the reality is to even make their theory of the demand curve work, they've got to make arbitrary assumptions uh, to actually to get it. And the arbitrary assumption they make is a it cl- mm. is a classic. Um, and the way it was first expressed by the guy I first discovered, this guy called Gorman back in 1953, um, he actually said the following summary, the necessary conditions quoted above are, are, are quite intuitively uh, reasonable. They say, in effect an extra dollar of income will be spent in the same manner, yeah. no matter yeah, yeah. to whom it is given. So,
1: yeah, me and uh, Rupert, absolutely. Give us, give us ten. Oh, no, quid, no, no, I think quid.
0: Elon's a better. Let's use Elon, Elon again here. Yeah, yeah, and right. Elon, too. Okay, you, you get an extra dollar, and you will spend fifty pence of that um, in establishing an outpost on Mars. <laughs> it's obvious, isn't it? Really? <laughs> That's uh, absolutely. Okay. Uh, yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely, and yeah. it's total, my oh, wife keeps giving me a hard time over
1: that. Yeah, I know. I know. Like, yeah, I've yeah. seen all those red balls The, in the your, kids are study. starving and there you are off on your moon project again, Mars project again. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So it, it is crazy. It is simply crazy. They, they, they simply, this is what neoclassicals do all the time. They reach a logical impasse and they leap over it with, mm. with a ludicrous assumption, um, which they are happy with because it means they don't need to worry about it anymore, but it makes a travesty of their whole theory. And then yet on they continue. So they can't even explain where a market demand curve comes down, which has the characteristics they want unless they assume that all consumers have close to identical tastes. There's only one way the tastes can differ. and all commodities are identical as well. That's the fun bit uh, because the way that um, um, Gorman put this first of all well, is to say that all Engels curves are parallel. Now Engels does not mean Karl and Marx here. Um, it's a mathemat- mathematic- mathematical term for angles, but the angle curve is the line, you, is the curve you can draw by increasing somebody's income without changing prices, and that students will go through exercises using the stuff we used to when I was a, a victim of a first-year economics class. And a luxury good is one which you will spend more of as your income rises. A necessity is one you'll spend less of. Uh, now the class of good that their theory fits is neither a luxury nor a necessity. It's a good which you consume in exactly the same ratio of your income, no matter how much your income rises. But let's take an example. For example, pizza. You mentioned pizza beforehand. Mm. How many pizzas do you reckon Bill Gates consumes? Well, he, by that theory, he'd be eating an awful lot,
1: wouldn't he? And he looks, like, them a week. he looks so yeah. slim on it. He's. Yeah, oh, yeah. I'd like to know what his secret is.
0: Given yeah, he's his secret is not being an economist. A day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so It's it's nonsense that there's this constant mm. curve, but that's what they were willing to assume to hang on to the theory. Yeah. And what they should have done is realise, well, first of all, the whole idea of starting from isolated individuals doesn't work. We've got to work at some aggregate level, which is what the classical school of economics did before they came along. Um, and, and I've actually lost my second point saying my firstly. Uh, but al- also... Um, admit that a lot of the exchanges are non-equilibrium exchanges. The whole thing they're trying mm. to do is shove everything into an equilibrium Well, you've got to have that equilibrium
1: because we've got to have that point, haven't we? we you know, in our first-year textbooks where we're saying, you ah, know, the mm. uh, pr- 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 prices rise as, you know, we see uh, the cross between the two, you know, diminishing marginal utility yep. equals, uh, you know, the… Rising with, marginal cost. R- yeah. Rising marginal
0: cost, yeah, the cost of production. So Which is the next I, myth we'll talk about in the next instalment. Yeah. So
1: without, without that, how do we get at the optimum price? It'll be. And left that's exactly
0: to, it. Yeah.
1: It'll be left to businesses to decide that all by themselves. Which, mm. when I was running a business, if I saw uh, that demand was increasing, the first thing I'd do would be to uh, would be to push uh-huh. up prices. Really, as a factor of how much competition have you got, uh, mm. and but also the uniqueness of your product as well. Which you know you can't mm. just as you can't assume that every individual uh, behaves the same. You can't assume that every single pizza is the same, for example.
0: Well, that's that, that's the other thing. I mean, the the, the way they've they've made a whole set of assumptions to lock us into a vision of competition which bears almost no re, re, uh, re, relation to the real world of competition. So new commu- oh, you, you were talking in telecommunications, mm. I take it, yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, even in telecommunications, there are different bit rates, different uh, frequency bands, different... Uh, Different hardware, I mean, different, different operating but systems, also and also difference of
1: how you pr- present your brand. There's a difference in your customer yeah.
0: service. Yeah. Uh,
1: you know, there's customer's and, perception and of, of of your company. So,
0: and that's what tend, it tends to determine competition. It's not competing over relative price. It's relative features. That drives mm. competition. And that's the interesting stuff. That is quite fascinating. And I know, like you, 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 the marketing world and management world will spend a lot of time on that issue. But economists boil it down to just being relative price and, and poo pooing the importance of, di- of different. Uh, quality aspects of the same product class, and so on, uh, and they, they've produced this soulless form of, of, of vision of competition, which isn't internally consistent anyway. And that's that's the farce of it all. So I just want to kick the whole bloody lot out and start looking at it in you know, sort of a, a management marketing way that your way you're talking about it as well. Um, corporations don't compete generally speaking on price; they compete on 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 effectively quality or chara- you know unique characteristics of the product. Uh, and marketing and so on, and that's an essential part of a capitalist economy. Let's try to understand.
1: Even it. if you were looking at it as if every company was producing exactly the same, so the marginal utility to the consumer, you know, the or the utility, I should say, to the consumer from from everyone's product is exactly the same. You're going to have different sized firms, aren't you, within that industry? All with you know different costs of production. So, uh, so you know that supposed supply and demand curve is going to cross at the the wrong place for, for many companies. If well, that's the thing to talk
0: about. That that's a, a
1: higher cost of production.
0: That's a, that's a topic for the next half. We're talking about the demand curve today. But yeah, the, all these all these things um, that are essential part of the real world are assumed away by neoclassical economics. And what they've done is assume away the interesting stuff. The stuff that actually gives mm. you change over time. So, like in in terms of of competition, how do you get new products coming about? Um, what 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 is Lamborghini famous for? Making cars, not toasters. What was it first? what is it first manufactured?
1: Oh, you might have told me this before. I don't know. Yeah, tractors. Oh yeah, that's right. Tractors. Exactly. Yeah yeah okay. yeah. Uh,
0: so there was it was actually competition between the Lamborghini and Ferrari families to to build a, a fast car to appeal to their. Uh, you know fellow uh, wealthy capitalists in the north of in- north of, I- of italy that's what led to the development of these in- incredible high performance vehicle companies mm. um and well, thank God it, for that. So We'd it, it, rather boring
1: watching tractors going around uh, the Monaco Grand Prix circuit, wouldn't it? I
0: think that's actually how they started <laughs> tractor races. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but but yeah, that's that's the fascinating stuff about how does innovation occur and how do new products turn up, and that evolutionary side of capitalism is its strength. This is what capitalism does better than any pre-existing social system. It's innovating variations in products and technological change over time, and that's all completely left out of the ma- mainstream economic thinking. It's all about relative price. There's no real concept of innovation turning up in any meaningful sense in their theory. And they fill people's heads full of all this competitive stuff, end up defending a world which doesn't exist and using it as a way to, to, to talk about the strengths of the one we actually live in, uh, to which those features don't actually apply. Right. But uh,
1: given that, you know, in that first year of, of economics um, that you are told the supply and demand curve and here, therefore, here is the price of pizza. Uh, how is that actually, even though it might be wrong, does it really matter? How is it really applied? Now, what does it, Has anyone ever actually used those supply and demand curves in any in any real life situation. I mean, is it does it feed into models anywhere? I mean is it used at all?
0: I think I think there are some people who do calculations elasticity and so on. So that actually does turn up what you know what is the impact generally speaking of us changing our price on demand for our product. Right. Uh, but that's fair enough, isn't it? Bit, I mean ideally you'd that's say that's fair enough I, that's, ideally that's you segment, you'd, it. you'd say you would say well yeah.
1: like segmented, let's segment it let's look because there be different elasticities based on I mean, as a marketer that's what I do I'd say well okay we we believe there's six market segments. Let's look at the price of elasticity per segment and see how much overall it's going to practice. But it's it's applying that same yeah, rule, yeah. isn't it? So the so the, the theory sounds.
0: Yeah, it's, it's okay at that level, but they spend far too much time on it. Uh, and it, and it, it, the whole idea of like market demand curve and market supply curves are mathematical obstructions any abstractions anyway. Um, and for most firms the, the basic story is whatever the elasticity is sell as many units as you can. We're simply trying to find the the, the price and and, and uh a competitive features combination that gives us as much market share as we can get our hands on, and that's what tends to drive individual firms. Right. So the supply curve then supposed to slope the other way. You're going to tell me
1: that that doesn't apply either because there's too many. Factors. I am,
0: but not this week because I think we've already pretty much exhausted our time. But I'm going to give you a couple we've of quotes talking, of my we we've, we've, we've
1: been talking for 24 minutes, which is we we normally talk for. <laughs>
0: i going to quote a bit of Samuelson here. Right, okay, cool. Go, All right, that's okay. Okay, yeah. okay good, because... We don't, we don't I mean, want to in, do two in, in, lines in one in one podcast, obviously. Well, yeah, but the, 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 the one curve in one, the other... keep the curve neatly separated, just like neoclassical theory does. The, right? And this,
1: okay. dear uh, listeners, is why we've done almost 250 episodes of this podcast. We can, <laughs> we can really drag it out if we want to. We can slice and dice, yeah. <laughs> slice we'll and a week after that, we'll look at the intersection between these two
0: curves. We don't want to do that in the same uh, episode, they, do we? They, 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 that could actually seriously be the way we go. right. I'm joking. Okay, so... Samuelson. Oh, okay. Or the, or, okay, okay, Samuelson. Because uh, I mean, I, you know, I read textbooks. Uh, I'm actually reading at the moment um, Mankiw's textbook again, and Baumol uh, and Blinder's textbook to have a go at the theory of the supply curve, which we'll talk about in the next instalment. But um, my my favourite. We're talking about demand curve here. Uh, the fact that this theory didn't work, so you couldn't derive a market demand curve is something they they gloss over in the textbooks. They'll wave their hands about it and say, uh, you know, so, okay, what well, have done with the individual? The applies at the market level and boom is the market demand and then on to the next page. And there's no no serious mention of it. What much to my amazement, somebody sent me saying, well Samuelson says he's actually proven that the market demand curve has exactly the same characteristic as the individual demand curve. And here's the quote. This is page two hundred and thirty-four. Of I think the 2012 or 15 edition of uh, of Samuelson's textbook, the market demand curve is found by adding together the quantities demanded by all individuals at each price. Does the market demand curve obey the law of downward sloping demand? It certainly does. Okay, nice and emphatic. <laughs> <It> certainly does. <laughs> and it then I, I then went, where the hell did he draw this from? Because I know that's a lie. Uh, how did he, did he actually think he proved it? And I went searching and found a paper in 56 by Samuelson where yes he proved that the market demand curve slopes down just like individual. How did he prove it? Well he first of all said that uh, you can't you, you can't um, go from an individual demand curve to a country's demand curve. Uh, but you can go from an individual demand curve to a family demand curve if you assume, and wait, this is going to love I've got to read this whole thing out. Since blood is thicker than water, the preferences of the different members of the, are interrelated by what might be called a consensus or social welfare function. This is, I'm sure, how you handle your kid's pocket money, mate, uh, which takes into account the deservedness or ethical worths Takes into account the deservedness or ethical worth of the consumption levels of each of the members, the family acts as if it were maximizing their and that's a, a busy word, their joint welfare function. In other words, you and, and Dana and the kids get together, pull all the money, share it out till everybody's equally happy about the distribution of income, and then you go shopping. Mm. Okay. Sadly that Your family is, works that way, doesn't
1: sadly it? Sadly it does rather too much. Absolutely. Okay. Okay. Um, <laughs> now wait for
0: it. Punchline, punchline. That's working out. So you you can sort of say, okay. So he's assuming all families families are happy. We we don't have any war and peace families in the Mm. in the the, um, the list. So just all happy families. Thanks for that. Thanks. thanks How do you get society? Yeah, how do you get to society yeah. from that? Well, just on that, so okay. th- that means, just,
1: I'm just looking at that, if, if one behaviour is is replicated by the whole of the family, then if yeah. grandma's in incontinence pads, then uh, everyone's in incontinence pads. Does that do with that? Well,
0: not quite. No, Grandma gets her pads, and you, she gets as many pads as you get Scotchers. Right. Um, okay. But it, so the same argument will apply to all of society, and I've got to read this out slowly, if optimal reallocations of income can be assumed to keep the ethical worth of each person's marginal dollar equal. Ah, so I thought I
1: thought economics was all about that we all uh, acted in our own interests, but now we're actually
0: saying, no, 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 we we're, we're acting we, in the goods we, of good of, we, uh, for society as a whole. We, know we, we, know that we Because we know this doesn't work, therefore we have installed, and we all know this person, of course, a benevolent central authority, perhaps, above us that redistributes income before any of us go shopping, so that all of us are happy. I'm, I'm very happy about Rupert Murdoch's share of the UK national income, mm. and I'm sure he's very happy about mine. Um, literally, he assumed that all of America is one big happy family, and... You know, you think I'm being sarcastic. This is how it's quoted in the leading textbook. This is the sort of garbage of what I read through, which is I really resent neoclassical economists with a passion these days. <laughs> uh, this is the book uh, called mass which is the textbook used by all the PhD programs, uh, certainly in America and mostly around the world. Um, so he goes through this section in, in his textbook and says, let us now hypothesize that there is a process, wait for it, a benevolent central authority perhaps, that for given any given prices P like a vector of prices and aggregate wealth function W redistributes wealth in order to maximize social welfare. So they assume America is a socialist socialist dictatorship and therefore the market system works in a socialist dictatorship. Wow.
1: I, I haven't Joe, heard you being silent for that long, ever. No, no I'm just saying Joe Biden's got a lot of work to do, hasn't he? I mean, he, he might be heading in the right direction. Perhaps he's reading the same. Joe, t-
0: they, they've finally got the benevolent dictator. Yeah. This is the nonsense they go on with to hang on to their bloody theories, which is why I get so angry about this crap. Uh, because it's this lovely superficial veneer of a well-oiled machine, and you go inside it, and it makes Heath Robinson look like a genius. So it's so okay. So we are up to thirty minutes now, so we can go,
1: go. Uh, and work yeah. on the next curve next week. But I mean, so all we can say, I mean, it, it it's for very basic level economics, day one. It's still yeah. worth showing the. Demand curve, isn't it? Even though we say, but this is just for one. Really, this is no. this is for one person at one point in time. It really doesn't apply uh, in the
0: real world, and uh, and and here's why. It's a good. It's a good. Well, we haven't even talked about why why their model of individual behaviour doesn't fit an individual. That's another topic. I mean, we should actually wrap. <laughs> that's <laughs> a guy called a German, a German academic called Sippel. I've I've never actually met him. I would like to meet up with him. He's this is nothing I Can you do it in, Can you do it in three minutes? Can you tell us about Sippel in three minutes? Go on, give it a go. No. Hmm. Oh yeah, well, okay. But basically, Sippel tried to prove the theory of the individual consumer to his class. He had a class of, I think he had a, he had a, a, a tutorial group of about twelve people, and then a, a large group of about thirty-five. And he decided to do an experiment testing the theory of, of consumer behavior, which was due to Samuelson, by the way, called the uh, the the uh, theory of re- revealed preference. And Samuelson people were attacking the whole idea of the, the way. He, again, Samuelson's invention of indifference curves to represent taste. So you work out this combination of goods to which you're indifferent and that gives you a a set of points where you get the same utility. So if you change your relative price and stay on that curve, you you feel no no better off or worse for changing your consumption. Mm. Uh, And people said, well, we can't see these things. And Samuelson said, aha, we can reveal them by asking people questions that show whether they're on the same indifference curve or a different one. And the the axioms are uh, tr- transitivity. So if you prefer A to B and B to C, you prefer A to C. Uh, completeness. So if you're shown one bundle of goods and another bundle of goods, you can say which one you prefer, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and, you had, and what simple, did was set up a, a set of, ex- I think, eight repeated experiments with students over a s- substantial period of time where... They were given different relative price combinations for each of these eight types of commodities, uh, which tested various elements of this theorem. And when he finished doing it, he found 95% of the answers he got contradicted the theory with the 12. So he repeated it. And with the larger group, he got, I think, 92% of the answers contradicted the theory. And the reason it fell over, uh, people could certainly say whether they preferred chips to a orange juice and a different price of orange juice would mean they buy different, more oranges and less chips and so on, all this sort of stuff. But what the, what the theorem falls over on is what's known as the curse of dimensionality, because if you just imagine you have uh, 10 commodities, which you're looking at, 10 different commodities and 10 different, quant- 10 different quantities from zero to 10. You have ten to the ten combinations. Mm. Okay, okay, that is so many combinations that you you're given. A, if you want to make a, a whole bunch of shopping trolleys with different combinations, you can make out of that. You got, got, got a hundred. You got a hundred. You got a. You got a billion combinations. And I'm sure. Yeah, and game. I'm
1: sure for each category, he was only choosing a billion shopping trolleys. He was only choosing yeah. one brand as well. So you know. Well, the brands didn't even come into it. Yeah. This, so can multiply they, they, that they, many they, times over as well yeah. because you might decide yeah, that you but, don't
0: want to don't want a fizzy drink unless it's Coke. Yeah. Yeah. So he tried, Sybil tried all sorts of very valiant ways to rescue the theory. And at the end of it, he found, he said, uh, realizing that we can't even explain consumer demand, maybe we should reduce our, economists should reduce their imperialistic uh, pressure to try to take over other social sciences. <laughs> so I think he was a, he, he, in trying to prove the theory and ending up disproving it, he had a realistic reaction to it and said, it just doesn't work. And unfortunately, that theory that doesn't work is still taught in every textbook so, in economics. So, what is page one then? Uh, what do, what
1: do we teach kids in the first hour of learning economics? What's what would what's our opening sentence? If we're not going to do this supply and demand curve, what do we start with?
0: Well, I, you're going to find that when I start talking about the contest, the, the New week. Economics uh, a manifesto. All oh, right, okay. but I start with the banking. I start with money.
1: Right. Okay, yeah, good point. Okay, very good. Yeah. All right, well, uh, well, we'll look next week. Obviously next week, because everyone's hanging out for it now. Next week, uh, the we're going to look at the supply curve. And um, there you go. And maybe the week after, unless we can get through it next week, if we really put a spurt on, maybe we can look at the intersection between the two. <laughs> there you go. We'll see okay. how we manage. All right, very good to talk, Steve. Thank you. Thank you welcome mate, bye. And now you understand why this podcast could last for years, couldn't it? That's it for today, and it probably will. That's it for today, I'm Phil Dubby back with Steve Keane again next week. Thanks for listening.